Amen. All right, well, we're there in 2 Samuel, uh, chapter number 21. I'd like you to keep your place there. That's our text for this morning. But go with me to the book of Judges, Judges chapter number 2. Judges chapter number 2. Brother Terry, if you could just turn me up just a hair, I'd appreciate that. Judges chapter number 2. And you're there in 2 Samuel. You just, if you go backwards from 2 Samuel, you've got 1 Samuel, Ruth, and Judges. Judges chapter number 2. And uh, make sure you keep your place there in 2 Samuel. We've been in a series entitled Slaying Goliath the last several weeks. And if you remember the first week, uh, we, we talked about Goliath. And we talked about what makes you dismayed and afraid. And we talked about those things that we see as hopeless and hurtful. And then in the second week, we talked about before you get to Goliath, those little giants you have to battle before you get to the big giant. And we talked about the naysayers and the worldly counsel and the indifferent. And then last week... I preached a sermon called Fight or Flight, right? Facing your fears. What, how David was able to go against Goliath when others were too afraid to do so. This week, I want to end and conclude this series with a sermon entitled Preparing the Next Generation of Giant Slayers or just the next generation of giant slayers. And we're going to come back to 2 Samuel 21. But I want you to notice Judges chapter number 2. And in Judges chapter 2, look down at verse number 7. I just want you to notice this and, and kind of let this be a highlight in your mind. Judges chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says this, The people served the Lord. This is, of course, uh, after the days of, of, of Joshua. The children of Israel have conquered the land of Canaan. And now they're going into this time of, uh, in, in, of the judges where they have these military uh, chieftains, really, that are leading the people. And, of course, you know, the theme of the book of Judges is that every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and, and there's a big mess there as a result. But I want you to notice what leads into that is what we read about in verse 7. And the people served the Lord, notice what it says, all the days of Joshua. Joshua was a strong leader, and while Joshua was alive, the children of Israel served the Lord. And not only during the life of Joshua did they serve the Lord, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. So Joshua was a strong leader, as he led the children of Israel, the children of Israel served the Lord. And Joshua had some contemporary leaders that outlived him. And of course, you know that's true because Joshua and Caleb were the oldest men in the nation there since they were the two spies that did not give an evil report. Everyone else died and they went into the promised land. And the Bible tells us that not only while Joshua lived did the children of Israel serve the Lord, but because he was such a strong and capable leader, he had strong and capable leaders around him. And the elders uh, that outlived Joshua, while they were alive after Joshua's death, the children of Israel also served the Lord. But uh, notice what it says there, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, for he did for Israel, uh, look at verse 8, and Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in timnath in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gash. Look at verse 10. And also, all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose, notice what it says here, another generation after them. I want you to notice these words, which knew not the Lord. Which knew not the Lord. While Joshua lived, the people served the Lord. And while the elders that outlived Joshua, the people served the Lord. But the Bible tells us that after Joshua was gone and after those leaders were gone, there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which we had done for Israel. Notice verse 11. And the children of Israel, notice what the Bible says. When a generation arose that did not know the Lord, they did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And notice verse 12. They forsook the Lord, God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. If you don't have a child on your lap, I'd like you to take some notes this morning and I'd like you to write this statement down. This is not one of my points, but I just want you to have this statement. It's a good quote for you to think about. I've written it down in several places in my Bible and I think about it often. I heard a preacher say this, I heard a pastor say this, and when he said it, I thought that's a good quote. And I wrote that down and I want to make that something that I often think about. And the quote is this, there is no success without succession. There is no success without succession. If we fail to pass down our faith to the next generation, we have failed. Please understand that there is no success without succession. 
It does not matter how nice of a home you live in. It does not matter how nice of a vehicle you drive. It does not matter how uh, nice of clothes your children wear. It does not matter how successful you are, how well you provide for them. It does not matter how many trips you take and how many vacations you go on and how many pictures you have and how many memories you have. If we fail to pass down our faith to the next generation, we have failed. There is no success without succession. But David was actually a man used of God who was able to not only be to not only be a giant slayer himself, but he was a man that was used of God to prepare the next generation of giant slayers. And what we're trying to avoid when we talk, to, when we talk about preparing the next generation of giant slayers, you say, what are we trying to avoid? We're trying to avoid Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, that there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord. Now keep your place there in Judges. We're going to come back to it. But go back with me to First and Second Samuel. You had your place in Second Samuel. Go to First Samuel right before it. Keep your place in Judges. We're going to come back to it. But I want to give you this morning three thoughts, three steps that we see from the life of David in regards to preparing the next generation of giant slayers. Preparing the next generation of giant slayers. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We've been in 1 Samuel 17 for some time now. And though that is not our text for this morning, I do want you to glean a couple of things from it. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I'd like you to look at Verse number 48, 1 Samuel 17 and verse 48. You're familiar with the story. We've dealt three weeks with it now. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine. You've looked at it already. We've seen it, so I'm not going to take the time to show you the verses again. But you know that the response of the children of Israel to Goliath was that they fled in fear. The Bible says that they were afraid and greatly dismayed. They were without hope, and they did not think that they could uh, beat Goliath. They did not think that anybody could beat Goliath. But David does that which no one thinks can be done. And the Bible tells us there in verse 50 that David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Remember that? Because he did not take the, 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 the weapons that Saul was attempting to make him take and in verse 51, the Bible says, Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. You say, what does it mean to be a giant slayer? Here's what it means to be a giant slayer. It's when you accomplish that which others think is impossible. When you accomplish that which others say is not possible. When you accomplish that, it's when you raise children in this generation where we see so many children going you know to the things of the world and going against the world and when you actually raise kids that love the Lord and 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 serve God and are soul winners you know that makes you a giant slayer when you uh, preach, you know, the Word of God in, in a way today where we're told, you know, you can't build a church that way and you can't lead a ministry that way. But when you do it anyway, and when you fight the giants of our time, that makes you a giant slayer. See, everyone else stays back while David fights and prevails over the giant. But here's what's interesting about that. When you get to 1 Samuel 17... Nobody thinks, nobody thinks that Goliath can be defeated. Nobody thinks that Goliath is someone that can be brought down. Nobody thinks that they have the ability, that they have the ability to be able to beat and prevail against Goliath. And here's what's interesting, though. You're there in 1 Samuel 17. Go to 2 Samuel 21, the text that we read this morning. When you get to 2 Samuel 21, and 2 Samuel 21 is towards the end of the life of David. At the beginning of the life of David, nobody thinks that Goliath can fall. Nobody thinks that a giant can be prevailed against. Nobody thinks that they can win against Goliath. When you get to the end of the life of David, giants are falling all the time. Giants are being killed all the time. Many normal people are going to battle against giants and beating them. Are you there in 2 Samuel 21? Look at verse 15. 
Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint, verse 16. And here's our first giant we learned about. Remember we talked about last week where David picked up five stones. One, you know, people believe that one was for Goliath and the other four may have been for four other giants mentioned in the scripture. Well, we're going to read about those four of the giants here in this, in this passage. Look at verse 21. And Ishbibinoth, that's giant number one, which was of the sons of the giants, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. Verse 17. And Abishai, here we have our next generation of giant slayers, the son of Sarariah, succored him, and notice what it says, smote the Philistine and killed him. So at the beginning of David's life, nobody thinks giants can fall. At the end of David's life, after David kills Goliath, we have Abishai who looked at what David did and said, well, I can do that too. And when this giant, Ishbibinoth, who the Bible says thought to have slain David, that means he intended to kill David, he was planning to kill David, Abishai, the son of Zerai, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Look at verse 18. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle against the Philistines at Gob and Sebekai. That's our second uh, 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 giant slayer here, next generation giant slayer. The, Hush, the Hushathite slew Seth. That's our second giant which was of the sons of the giants. Look at verse 19. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jerogoam, a Bethlehemite, notice, slew, here's giant number three, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Look at verse 20. And there was yet a battle in Gath. Where was? Here's giant number four. We are not given a name. We're just given a description. A man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. And he also was born to the giant. And he, when he defied Israel, notice this, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, the brother of David, slew him. Slew who? The great man, the, great, the, the man of great stature, verse 22, these four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. I want you to notice, before David, no one thinks they can kill a giant. After David, it's open season on giants. Before David, people say, it cannot be done. They're dismayed and afraid. After David, men rise up who say, you know what, if David can do it, I can do it. You know, if David can kill a giant, I can kill a giant. You know, if Goliath can go down, then this giant can go down. So it was the first lesson we learned in regards to preparing the next generation of giant slayers. Well, number one, if we're going to prepare the next generation, if we're going to pass down our faith to the next generation, we must set the example. We must set the example. We see David does that which no one thought could be done. And then others follow his lead and begin to do the same thing. If you kept your place there in Judges, I'd like you to go back to Judges. In Judges chapter 7, there is a great uh, verse in regards to leadership. And it's in the story of Gideon. And we're not going to go into the story of Gideon. I just want you to, I just want to pull out this one verse. And it's a statement that Gideon makes as he is leading an army towards his David and Goliath uh, story. When, of course, when 300 soldiers are going to go up against an innumerable uh, military I want you to notice what Gideon says. It's a, great, it's a great leadership verse. And look, we are all leading somebody. Well, you know, as a pastor, I lead a church, but you may be leading somebody as a husband and as a father, and you ladies are leading somebody in regards to your children and other people that are, are looking to you towards leadership or whatever it might be. And you know what? Even, even kids, you know, even uh, the, the teenagers here, they might not realize it, but they've got some younger children looking at them in a leadership capacity and looking at them, and we all need to learn to become better leaders. And in Judges chapter 7 and verse 17, the Bible says this, and he, Gideon, Judges 7, 17, and he, Gideon, that's Gideon, though he there, if you want to look at it in the context, and he said unto them, here's a great statement on leadership, notice what he says, he says, look on me and do likewise, look on me and do likewise, what does a good leader do, here's what a good leader does, he says, look on me and do likewise, notice he said, look on me and do likewise, and behold, when I come out uh, to the outside of the camp, it shall be that, notice what he says, 
as I do, so shall ye do. Look, a leader sets the example. A leader says, look on me and do likewise. A leader says, as I do, so shall ye do. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 in the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. Let me ask a question to those of you in leadership. We should be all of you uh, here. You're leading somebody. There is somebody looking at you for leadership. It may be a younger Christian looking up to you as an older Christian. It may be a younger sibling looking up to you as an older sibling. It may be because you actually have a leadership position in ministry or as a husband or as a father or as a mother or as an employer or whatever it might be. And here's the question I have for you. Do you look at those that are following you and say, as I do, do thou likewise? Or do you tell your kids, do what I say, but not what I do? Because a bad leader says, here's what we should do. Now I'm not doing it. Now I'm failing in that area. Now I'm not doing those things. But here's what you should do. That's what a bad leader does. You know why? Because the leader must set the example. It's not enough for David to look at his servants and say, hey, you can kill a Goliath. You can kill a giant. You can win great battles. You know what? David has to go and set that example first. And a leader, a leader that passes down his faith to the next generation, his courage to the next generation, the torch to the next generation, does so by first setting the example. You're there in 1 Corinthians 4, look at verse 16. Notice what the Apostle Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, Wherefore I beseech you. Notice what he says. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Paul said, hey, follow me. Follow me. Do what I do. And where do you think Paul learned that from? Well, maybe he learned it from the Lord Jesus Christ who would often look at his disciples and say, follow me, follow me. And here Paul says, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. You're there in 1 Corinthians 4. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse 1. And here's the question you've got to ask yourself. What kind of example are you setting for those that are coming behind you? What kind of example are you setting for those that are coming behind you? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 1. The Bible says this. Paul said this. He said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Today you've got hyper-spiritual people who say, oh, I don't follow man. I don't follow man. I don't need a pastor. You know what? I don't need a man to lead me. I just follow Christ. Well, Paul said, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. God always raises a leader to lead his people. And look, if, you're, if you say, I don't follow anyone, you're not right with God. Amen. The Bible says, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. You're there in 1 Corinthians 11. Go to Philippians chapter number 3. You've got 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. This is uh, the Apostle Paul, again, writing to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, says this. Philippians 3, 17. Brethren, notice what he says. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which so walk so as ye have for, notice what he says, an ensample. He says, God has given you leaders to be your ensample, to be your example. And he says, brethren, be ye followers together of me. Here's what you need to understand. You as a leader are setting an example that your followers will follow. And look, it's proven statistically. You know, parents who smoke can tell their children all day long, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't ever start, don't ever start. But it's statistically proven that children are more likely to begin to smoke when their parents smoke. Children are more likely to be alcoholics when their parents were alcoholics. Children are more likely to get a divorce when their parents got a divorce. Children are more likely to go down the sin of their parents when that's the example that was set before them. It's just, you can't get away. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. If you're going to bring the next generation along, we must learn that we must set the example. I remember a couple of years ago when we were having the big Orlando protest and we had five or six or 700 protesters out in the church. I remember one of the biggest questions that I was getting from people was, should we bring our children to the service? Should we bring our children to the service? And I thought to myself, why would you not bring your children to the service? 
You know, I want to set an example for my children that I, we don't run away from battles. We don't run away from Goliaths. We don't, look, you think I want the, the, the image that my children grow up with was when there was a big protest, dad cowered out. Dad ran away with his tail between his legs. You think that's what I want them to remember? You say, Pastor Menes, do you want your children to one day stand up and preach and, and stand against the, the sodomite agenda? Well, you know what? They better see me do it too. I'm not going to raise, look, I'm, I'm just trying to explain to you. You're not going to raise a giant slayer when you're running away from all your giants. When you're running scared, when you're setting the wrong example, when you can't beat that drug, when you can't beat that addiction, when you can't beat that sin, when you, when you just cower and run every time something gets difficult, just realize that's the example that you're setting for the next generation. Why was it that David was able to raise up servants that killed giants in their day? Because David stood up against the giant of his day. And if we're going to raise the next generation of giant slayers, we must realize that we must first set the example. We must be able to look at our children and say, be followers together of me. Be followers of me even as I also am of Christ. So number one, we must set the example. But number two, we must set up memorials. Go, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you would. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We must set up memorials. I want you to notice what David did after he killed Goliath. And this is something you find as a common theme throughout Scripture. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 51, the Bible says this, Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword. Notice what it says. And drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him. I want you to notice what David did. And cut off his head therewith. And cut off his head therewith. You missed that part in the Sunday school version of David and Goliath. But David cuts off Goliath's head. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Look down at verse number 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, I want you to understand a couple of things. At this point in history, Jerusalem is not a city that belongs to the nation of Israel. It is still a, a city called Jebus. It is not until later on in David's life, when David becomes the king of Judah, that he takes over Jebus and turns it into uh, the city of Jerusalem. So when the Bible says here that he took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, we're actually fast-forwarding into the future. But I want you to say, you say, why would David cut off the head of Goliath and take it as a trophy to show all the enemies of the children of Israel and then set it up in the future capital of the city. Why would David do that? And here's what you need to understand. David took a souvenir. David took a souvenir from his battle with uh, Goliath in order to set it up as a memorial for future generations to see. The Bible tells us that he took the head. Look at verse 54 again of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. That's not the only souvenir he took. It also tells us, but he put his armor in his tent. He took the head of the Philistine as a souvenir. He took the armor of the Philistine and put it in his tent. Go to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. We're fast forwarding into the life of David, but I want you to notice that these souvenirs became a memorial that people could look at and they could look at it and they could say, hey, one day David slew Goliath. We remember that David slew a giant. 1 Samuel 21. This is later on in the life of David. David is now running from Saul because Saul has grown envious of David. And by the way, when you kill Goliaths, when you kill giants, people will grow envy of you. And they will fight you, and they will attack you, and they will lie about you. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 8 says this, And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand, in, uh, under thine hand spear or sword? So David is speaking to Ahimelech, and he's asking for, uh, he's running from Saul, and he's asking for weapons. He says, For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Eli, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take it, uh, take that, take it, for there is no other save that there. And David said, There is none like that give it me. I want you to notice that in the tabernacle where the Levites were ministering, they had placed the sword of Goliath. Why would they do that? Because it was set there as a memorial, as a way to remember. See, here's what you need to understand. We must teach and reteach the next generation 
about the battles that have already been fought. Go to Joshua chapter number 4. Let me give you an example of this. Joshua chapter 4. We must set up memorials. This is a common thing. If you've read the Old Testament, I'll give you one example of it, but it's common throughout the Old Testament that they were commanded to set up these memorials. We talked about it last week. I'm not going to take you to that passage, but if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that they uh, beat the Anakims and Moses was commanded to rehearse that in the ears of Joshua and to let him know and to remind him about that battle. Let me give you another example here. Joshua chapter 4, if you kept your place in Judges, right before Judges, you have the book of Joshua. Continue to keep your place there in Judges, but go to Joshua chapter 4, look at verse 1, Joshua chapter 4 and verse 1, the Bible says this, and it came to pass, this is a story when they are getting, when they, when they are crossing the Jordan, this is not crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea happened with Moses, they are now crossing the Jordan with Joshua, the Bible says, and it came to pass, when all the people were clean, passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. God performed a miracle where he stopped the flow of the Jordan River so that the children of Israel could cross the Jordan River. And, and if you remember the story, the Ark of the Covenant, as the priests held the Ark of the Covenant, they had to step out first by faith. The Bible says as the sole of their foot touched the water that God parted the, the, the river there. And as they crossed, those men that were uh, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they stayed in the midst of the Jordan until everybody had passed. And God is commanding them that they would choose one man from every tribe and that every man would go to the middle of that river and pick out 12 stones and leave them in the lodging place. They were to take out 12 stones from the midst of the river and carry them out to the other side of the river and then they built them. They basically just stacked them upon each other, these 12 huge stones. You say, what was the purpose or the reason for that? Look at verse 6, Joshua chapter 4 and verse 6. That this, that these stones that were pulled out from the midst of, of, the, of the river, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. And the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for, notice these words, a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God telling them to set up these memorials to show, to have these physical objects that would cause the children of Israel to look back and to think back, and the kids would ask their parents, what mean ye by these stones? And they would say, oh, let me tell you that story when God parted the Jordan River for us, and we pulled out these stones, and they were meant to do what? To remind them, to teach them, to reteach them. And listen to me, in your life and in my life, we must learn that it is our job to impart our faith to the next generation. And I'm not saying physically we need to build up memorials, although that wouldn't hurt. But spiritually, we need to build memorials in the lives of our children that will allow them to allow us to teach and reteach, to tell them the stories, to help them understand, to impart to them our faith. You say, why? Because there is no success without succession. And look, if you if you look, you, you can raise your kids at Verity Baptist Church all all the whole time they're growing up, they're in homeschool and they're this and they're that, and they're in every service, and you drag them soul winning, and if they grow up and never get saved and die and go to hell, you failed. They grow up and live for the world, you failed. If they grow up and, and, and don't live for God, and I'm not saying that every kid needs to grow up to be a preacher, but look, we should all have the goal that every one of our children grows up to serve the Lord. And I'm not concerned if my sons grow up. I don't need them to be pastors. I want them to do what, you know, if God places that desire in their lives, and praise the Lord for them. And if God raises a desire in their life for them to go and be a, a, a church member that's going to help a pastor in his local community, and they're just going to be businessmen or, you know, employees or whatever, praise the Lord for that. There's no shame in that. But they better be serving the Lord. That's, the goal is that they serve God because there is no success. There is no success without succession. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You're there in Joshua? Just one book pack. One book back. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We must impart our faith to the next generation. We must not only set up examples, but we must set up a memorial. 
We must set up a memorial. It's like what I was talking about with, uh, with the protest. My kids will forever have that memory in their minds of when they served God and when they were in that church that stood up against you know, the, 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 the perverts of this world. Hey, that's a great memory. That's a great memorial that we set up for them that they can remember. You know, it, it, my, your kids and my kids should have a memorial. They should have a memorial when they are adults where they can look back and remember as a uh, six-year-old and as a seven-year-old and as a nine-year-old and as a ten-year-old that they would go out soul winning with their family. They should have a memorial. I want my kids to have memories of, be, of, of sitting down and reading the Word of God with their mother and reading the Word of God with their father. You say, why do you do that? Because we want to set up some memorials that they can look back to and, and impart our faith in their lives. We must not only set the example, but we must set up memorials in their lives. Deuteronomy chapter 6, are you there? Look at verse 1. I just preached out of Deuteronomy 6 when we talked about homeschooling. I'm not going to go to those same verses. I just want you to look at verses 1 and 2 in the chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded you to teach you that ye might do them in the land whether ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command, which I command thee. Now I want you to notice what he says. Which I command thee. Don't miss this. Which I command thee. Thou... He says, you, that's generation chapter, you know, one, generation uh, one. He says, thou and thy son, that's generation two. Notice this, and thy son's sons, generation three, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. You know that God expects us to have an influence not only on the next generation, but the generation after that? God expects my reach as a father to not only go to my children, to my sons, but to my son's sons, to the second and to the third generation. You say, why is that? Because he desires that there would be overlap. See, if I reach not only my sons and my daughters, but I reach my influence into their sons and into their daughters, and then my sons not only have an influence on their sons, but they then reach into their sons' sons. And if their sons' sons, my grandchildren, not only have an influence on their sons, but they reach their influence into their sons' sons, and you have this constant overlap of influence, of imparting of truth, of imparting of faith, then we will never fail because there will always be succession. And by the way, you can find some joy in that and realizing you might say, well, I already messed up with my children. Yeah, but maybe you can influence your grandchildren. Yeah, well, well, my kids are already not living for God. But what about the grandkids? He says, I command thee that thou and thy son and thy son's sons all the days of thy life that they days may be prolonged. And look, we as Christian parents need to wrestle with this question. What makes a Christian home? What makes a Christian home? Or what makes a home Christian? See, I think we get this idea. We say, well, I have a Christian home because we don't watch certain things. And I'm all for not watching certain things. In our home, there's the many things we don't watch. I have a Christian home because we don't watch certain things. I have a Christian home because we don't drink certain things. I have a Christian home because we don't eat certain things. I have a Christian home because we don't wear certain things. And all of that is valid, and I'm not minimizing any of that. All of that is good. But please understand, that is not what makes your home a Christian home. And I would submit to you this morning that if you are not imparting truth to the next generation, you do not have a Christian home. You might have all the right rules and all the right stands and all the right structures and all the right... But if you are not passing that out to the next generation, if you're not making sure that that faith is being imparted to the next generation and the generation after that, you are failing. And I am failing. Because there is no success. There is no success without succession. We must impart our faith. We must impart our faith to the next Generation. Go to 2 Timothy, chapter number 1. 2 Timothy in the New Testament, you've got all those T books clustered together. 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, Titus. 2 Timothy, chapter number 1. I'd like to tell you a quick, quick story, a conversation I had this week. This week I went by to see Miss Joyce. Miss uh, Br- Brother Vijay is in India for a few weeks. And as he's traveling, I went by to see Miss Joyce, see how she was doing, see if she needed anything. And she uh, had brunch for me. We had brunch together. That was a nice 
time, and we're talking a little bit, you know, Brother VJ and Miss Joyce are in that, in that grandparent generation. We're talking about her kids and her grandkids. And she made a statement to me, and I, I asked her when she made the statement, I said, do you mind if I write that down? Would you mind if I use that in, in my sermon this Sunday? Because she didn't know what I was preaching about, but I, I said, that, that goes so well with what I'm preaching about. And she gave me permission to do that. And as we were talking about grandparenting, you know, and you say, why are you talking to Miss Joyce about grandparenting? You know, I want to learn from people that have done it right. She's got, she, they've got a family that, you know, are uh, saved. You've got young people, uh, you know, the children, the, their daughters that are saved and grandchildren that are saved and, you know, walking with God and loving the Lord and, and all of those things. And, you know, I'm, I, and, and they, here's the great key. They love the, each other. You get to the end of 50 years of marriage, you still love each other. That's a, quite a success. You still love your spouse. Your kids still like you. That's good. I want to learn from those people. And she made the statement to me, and she said, I asked her if I could use this in the sermon. She said this. She said, as grandparents, she has learned, do not interfere, but always influence. I said, man, can I write that down? Do not interfere, but always influence. You know, that's true. You know, as, as grandparents, you, one day, as you're a grandparent, and Lord willing, as one day I'm a grandparent, we need to be very careful. As our children get married, we need to be very careful because, you know, the Bible says this, and you have to turn there. But in Genesis 2.24, and this is quoted all throughout the Bible, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The Bible says when you get married, you ought to leave father and mother, and you ought to cleave unto your wife. And let me just go ahead and say this for you married couples. It is a very foolish thing to involve your parents or your in-laws in the problems of your marriages. You don't, no, don't, don't do this thing where it's like, oh, I'm mad, so I'm going to go spend the night with mom. No, no, no. When you get married, you are to leave and to cleave. You are to leave them behind. The umbilical cord needs to get cut at some point. You know, I'm thankful for my parents, and my, you know, my parents weren't perfect. Obviously, nobody's parents were perfect, but I remember one thing my dad said to me when my wife and I got married is, you don't come back here. <laughs> if this doesn't work out, you don't come back here. You, you figure it out. He said, that's your wife now. You know, and of course, he half joking, half not. You know, and listen, and, and you that are one day will have children that are married, and you'll be the in-laws. Don't interfere in your children's marriages. Don't interfere. That's not your place. There's a lot of wisdom there from an, uh, an older lady who says, you know what, never interfere, never interfere. That's not our place. She said, do not interfere, but always influence. You know, my goal is that one day my sons and my daughters will be old enough to where I cannot tell them what to do. They will be old enough, they will be married, where I cannot tell them what to do. I cannot tell them you must do this. I cannot tell them you must do that. I cannot walk into their homes after they're married and say, this place is a mess, why don't you clean it up? I won't have the, the authority to say that. But I hope that I will still have some influence in their lives. And I hope that I will have some influence in their children's lives. And I hope that the Lord will allow me to not only reach into the next generation, but the generation after that. And if he would allow me, maybe even the generation after that. And I want to not interrupt in their marriages, but I do want to try to influence and help them raise the next generation. And the next generation. And the next generation of giant slayers. How do, how do we do that? Well, here's how you do it. Number one, you must set the example. But number two, you must set up memorials. There must be markers that you put in life that you can look back to and say, this is what we believe. This is what we stand. Here is the faith of our fathers. 2 Timothy chapter 1, are you there? Look at verse 5. Notice what Paul said to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, 5, he says, When I call to remembrance, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Here we have an example of a grandmother, Lois, who not only influenced the next generation, but reached into that third generation and had an influence on her grandson, Timothy. How do we raise them? How do we impart? How do we pass the torch along? We must set the example. David set the example not only by encouraging the killing of the enemies of the Lord, but by going out in front and doing it first. Setting the example, killing Goliath, so that others can look at his example and say, it can be done. You know, one of my goals, everybody, every, everywhere I go, people, everybody wants to tell me, and I'm not, look, if you've done this, I'm not mad at you, and I'm not even thinking specifically at anybody in this room, but everywhere I go, no matter where I go, people are constantly telling me all the bad things about California. It can't be done in California. You can't survive in California. You can't live for God in California. I mean, people, you know, think of California. I don't know what they think California is like. 
Mars or something. And I get it, it's bad. But you know what? Noah raised you know, children in a really bad environment and found wives for them too. And people constantly want to say, oh, you can't do it in California. It can't be done. You can't build a church. You know what my, one of my goals is to build a thriving, independent, fundamental, Baptist, hard-preaching church in California as an example for other young men who will say, you know what? I'll go take on that giant of California. I'll I'll, I'll fight that battle. Everyone wants to tell us, no, it can't be done. You can't preach like this and build a church. You got to get rid of the pulpit. You got to put a little stool there. You got to share. You need small groups. You need contemporary music. You can't do it with the old hymns. You can't do it with the King James Bible. Hey, why don't we just beat that giant and then other young men will see it and say, hey, it can be done. You can still do it preaching the word of God. You can still do it not compromising. You can still do it being an old-fashioned fundamentalist. It can still be done. We need to impart. We need to impart, and we need to set up memorials. I hope that our church one day, our church one day, will be a church that young men will look at and say, man, they did it back then. They did it back then. You know, I hope that grandchildren and great-grandchildren one day will look at, at, at our church, and, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren one day will look at some great churches like, the, like Faithful Word Baptist Church and Steadfast Baptist Church and Old Pass Baptist Church. They would look back, you know, 50 years from now and 80 years from now and say, they were doing it back then! It still can be done. But we must set the example. And we must set up the memorials. There's a third thing I want you to notice. Go, go to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21. So how do we prepare the next generation of giant slayers? Well, number one, we must set the example. Number two, we must set up memorials. Here's point number three, and we're done. We'll, I'll, I'll give you this, and we'll be done. Here's point number three. We must stay in the fight. We must stay in the fight. We cannot quit. We will not set up the next generation. We will not impart our faith to the next generation of giant slayers when we quit the fight. I want you to notice something interesting about David. Are there in 2 Samuel 21? Look at verse 15. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David, I want you to notice what it says about David. David, mighty man of, of, of courage. He's a great warrior. The Bible tells us, and David waxed faint. In this battle, David got tired. That's what that means. He got faint. He wasn't able to fight like he used to fight. Look at verse 6. And Ishbibinab, which was one of the sons of the giants, the weight of his spear uh, weighed 300 shekels of brass and weight. He being girded with a new sword thought to have slain David. Again, that means he intended to kill David. So here you are in a battle. David is waxing faint to the point where even a giant can identify, you know what, David's not fighting like he used to fight. He's a little slower. He, he, he looks a little winded. He's a little tired, and this giant says, I'm going to go over there and kill the giant slayer. I'm going to go over there and kill David. Verse 17, but Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, succored him. So he got his attention. The giant was going towards David, and Abishai said, no, 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 come, look at me. And he started fighting with him and smote the Philistine and killed him. And the men of David swear unto him, saying, notice, after the threat was, uh, was neutralized and the giant was killed, the men of David swear unto him, saying, notice what they said. They said, thou shalt go no more out with us to battle. They said, you cannot battle with us anymore. Here, you say, why does he say that? Here's why they say that. Because David was an old man at this point. They are telling David, David, it's time to retire. David, you cannot do this anymore. Now, they were saying it's time to quit on God. They were saying, thou shalt go no more out with us to battle. Notice why? That thou quench not the light of Israel. Here's what they were saying. They were saying, David, you have been such a light to the children of Israel. You have been such a leader to the children of Israel. If you died now, it would really hurt our cause. So here's what we want, David. You're getting older. You're getting slower. You're getting more tired. You're not going to go out to battle with us. And they asked him to... To be done. Be done with the fighting. Not be done with serving God, but just be done with the physical fighting. You know, one day, I plan to pastor this church for, for the rest of my life, and I'm not going to be going anywhere else or doing anything else. But I hope one day, you know, when I'm uh, 80 years old or whatever, and the sermons aren't as sharp, and maybe the rambling goes on a little longer, that somebody will, uh, you know, nicely uh, come up beside me and say, Hey, pastor, maybe it's time you finish. <laughs> maybe it's time, you know, it, it, we all come to the place where we can't do. We will all come to the place where we can't do what we once used to do. And David here is coming to the end of his life. But I want you to notice what's interesting. When David comes to the end of his life, so when we see the beginning, because we saw the beginning of David's career, right? 
We've been talking about it for the last three weeks. What was the beginning of David's military career? It started with one big fight against Goliath, the giant of Gath, the Philistine. When David started his career as a military man, he was fighting the Philistines. And I want you to notice when David ended his career as a military man, I want you to notice what he was doing. Look at verse 15 again, 2 Samuel 21, 15. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed fame. I want you to notice that David began his career by fighting the Philistines. And David ended his career by fighting the Philistines. David just stayed in the fight. He was fighting the Philistines as a young man. He was fighting the Philistines as a middle-aged man. And he was fighting the Philistines as an old man. And you know what? As a Christian, you and I, if we're going to pass on to the next generation the faith of our fathers, we need to just stay in the fight. Say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. As a young man, I'm a soul winner. You know what my goal is? When I'm an old man, to be soul winning. As a young man, I'm preaching out of the King James Bible. You know, one day as an old man, I hope to be preaching out of the King James Bible. As a young man, I'm preaching, you know, standards and righteousness, and we want, you know, right music and not worldly music. I hope that as an old man, we're still singing the old hymns. We're still standing for the same truth. Nothing has changed. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. If we're going to pass on our faith to the next generation, we cannot quit and we cannot change. We fight the Philistines now, we better be fighting the Philistines then. David, David didn't quit the fight. He ended... He ended on the, on the same page, the same fight, the same battle, doing the same things when he started as when he ended. And you know what? If you and I are going to raise the next generation of giant slayers, we better stay in the fight. Look, 20 years from now, you, you better be King James only. 20 years from now, you, you, you better still be soul winning. 20, 20 years from now, you, you should be in a Baptist church. 20 years from now. You should still be believing the things that we believe, eternal security, you know, uh, the distress standards, all those things. 20 years from you say, why? Because when we quit and when we change, we destroy the next generation. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I, I don't, I, were, you, were you just in 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy? I'm not sure if I told you to keep your place there. I apologize. But go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Remember Paul said, follow me. Paul said, follow me, brethren, follow me. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. He said, I'm your example. I want you to notice how Paul ended his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know the verses, but let's look at them together. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul says, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul says, my life is getting ready to end. I'm getting ready to be done with the, what, you know, what God has called me to do. Verse 7, 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have, notice these words, finished my course. I have fought a good fight. He says, I have finished my course. Notice, I have kept the faith. What does that mean? He says, I haven't changed. I haven't changed. Listen to me. If we are going to prepare the next generation of giant slayers, we've got to stay in the fight. We can't quit. I started off married to Miss Joanne Clark. I'm planning on finishing married to Miss Joanne Clark. I, st I started off as a Baptist. I'm planning on finishing as a Baptist. I, I started off, you know, going to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. I plan on finishing that way. Now, one day I might get so old that I can't preach, but I'll be here. Someone will have to drag me in or wheel me in or whatever. What I'm trying to tell you is that we need to not quit. We need to not quit. I was talk we were talking to the guys... Uh, I forget which one of the guys was telling me, but we we're reading about in the Bible how it says that the next generation serve not the Lord, the next generation serve not the Lord, and we always look at that as a negative thing, like, oh, the next generation serve the Lord. But that's a lot better than what we're doing now, because today you've got people that show up for two or three years, and then they quit on God. Don't even make it to the next generation. They, they don't even serve God. It'd be like saying Joshua quit on God. Look, we've got to stay in this thing. We've got to stay in the fight. We've got to keep fighting the Philistines. We got to keep doing what God has called us to do. Go to Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at two passages. We'll be done. Acts 13, Psalm 78. If you want to find those, Acts 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Psalm 78. If you open your Bible right in the center, you're more than likely to find the book of Psalms. Psalm 78. Acts 13, Psalm 78. How do we prepare the next generation of giant slayers? How did David do it? Well, he set the example. He set up memorials and he stayed in the fight. He didn't quit. He never got tired of fighting them Philistines. He just kept fighting Philistines. 
And look, you're, gonna, you're never going to be done with the Philistines. You know that? We must teach and reteach. We must teach and reteach. We must never get tired of teaching and reteaching the same things. I was recently asked to preach uh, at the Soul Winning Conference. They said, well, you preach on eternal security. And at first I thought to myself, eternal security? Everybody knows about eternal security. But then I thought to myself, you know what? It's a privilege to teach and reteach the same things. To to, to lay the foundation. Because there's always someone who hasn't heard it. There's always a a, a young person who needs to be grounded in those things. To reach and to reteach. Acts 13 and verse 36. I want you to notice what the Bible says here in Acts about David. In Acts 13, we've got many generations after David. The descendants of David are talking about David. All the way in the New Testament, I want you to notice what they said, Acts 13, 36. For David, notice these words, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. I want you to notice that many, many years later, people look at the life of David and they go, you know what David did? David served his own generation. How did he do that? Well, by setting the example. By fighting the giants and showing people that giants can fall and leading others to do the same. By setting up memorials. By putting check marks where people could go back and look at and say, notice what had been done in the past. And if God did it for David, God is no respecter of persons. If God did it for David, he can do it for us. How did David serve his own generation? By staying in the fight. By not quitting. And of course, David had his own problems. He had sin in his life. We understand that. But he just kept fighting the Philistines. He just kept fighting the Philistines. Psalm 78, look at verse 1. Psalm 78, we're, we're done right here. Psalm 78. We must serve this generation. How? Psalm 78, verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Notice verse 3. Which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. And our fathers have told us. Listen to me, dads. Your goal in life ought to be that your adult children can say, our fathers have told us. Our fathers have taught us. Our fathers have explained to us. They've taught us. They've been there with us. Look at verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He had done. Here's a question I have for you. Are you helping us raise the next generation of giant slayers? Are you influencing your children? You say, well, that's that's done. How about your grandchildren? Are you setting the example for them? Are you setting an example of someone who quits on God? Of someone who gets backslidden? Of someone who quits on marriage? Who quits on the things of the Lord? Are you setting the example for your children and your grandchildren? Are you setting up memorials for them and showing them along the way and having conversations? And when they ask you questions, what mean ye by these stones, Grandma? What mean ye by these stones, Grandpa? Where you can say, let me tell you about when God parted the Red Sea, when God parted the Jordan, when God brought down the walls of Jericho. Are we setting up memorials? And are you staying in the fight? Are you staying in the fight? Because there's nothing that will do more to destroy the next generation than people who refuse to stay with it. Well, I used to. That won't help. Make sure you're still fighting the Philistines at the end of your life. Make sure you're taking the same stands, doing the same things. We will not hide from their children, showing to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done, because there is no success without succession. Let's bow our heads.